0: 42 tonight, Genesis 42, continuing our study here through the book of Genesis, and we've been dealing with Joseph the last couple weeks here, just a real quick recap, Joseph was uh, sold by his brothers into slavery here a few weeks ago. And we know what's happened here. Joseph ended up going and being sold as a slave in Egypt under the house of Potiphar. And as he went into Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife then accused him of rape because she wanted to be with him physically. And Joseph did the smart thing and fled. So she said that he basically did something he didn't. He ended up in prison. And that's where we kind of left off last week was Joseph in prison. Well, anyways, the Pharaoh had these dreams. And the guys that were with Pharaoh basically said, Hey, we remember this Hebrew that's in jail, Joseph. He can interpret dreams. So they brought him before Pharaoh, and they brought him before Pharaoh, and he interpreted his dreams. And Pharaoh was so blessed by it and so amazed by it, they put Pharaoh, excuse me, put Joseph second in charge of the kingdom. And that's where we left off with. Joseph, second in charge of the kingdom. This famine is coming that Joseph now is responsible to make sure Egypt's taken care of with it. And it's amazing. As we mentioned last week numerous times, here is this foreigner Hebrew that had been convicted of a crime of rape, even though he didn't do it. He'd been in prison, and now he's second in charge of Egypt. If you remember our book in verses that we've been saying for Joseph every time we've been going through this, the two verses, the first one in Psalm 105, where it says that the Lord allowed these things in Joseph's heart to prepare his heart, to make his heart like iron, hard, ready, prepared for this. And then at the end, in Genesis 50, Joseph holds no bitterness in any way whatsoever. In Genesis 50, it says that you meant this for evil, but God turned around and used this for good. So we're seeing the good come now. Joseph's in a good spot. He's married. He's got a couple kids. We talked about last week how he has kind of forgotten all the pain he went through and moved on. So that sets us up now for Genesis 42 tonight. Now, a real bit of housekeeping from last week. We had a big discussion on Joseph's wife. And if you remember that correctly, verse 45, And the pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphon-Pana, and he gave him as a wife Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. And we had a big discussion about this, about Joseph marrying a foreign wife, and the foreign wife that is the daughter of a priest of On, of a false deity. And how can we correlate this? So a lot of good comments, a lot of good questions. I was kind of thinking about this and praying about this. This is not an original thought. I'm sure I heard it from somebody. I just can't remember who, so I can't give them credit. But it's really a picture of us. Just as Joseph is a picture of Jesus when you study this out, Jesus married a Gentile bride, if you will. And really, that's us. We're the Gentile bride. Look at Joseph. Joseph married a Gentile bride, somebody that was not Hebrew. So really this woman is a picture of us, a church, somebody that is not of God's lineage, somebody who was not serving the Lord but eventually came into this relationship with Joseph and you see the blessing they have of two kids there. It's really a picture once again of Jesus' love for us. We are not Jewish. We were serving a false God, the God of this world, and through a relationship with Christ we have been now made right. So I want you to chew on that for a little bit. But anyway, Genesis 42. Famine's going on. What's going on now? Verse 1 of Genesis 42, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now we're all back. You know, if this was a Hollywood movie, this is where the music would slow down a little bit. It would get a little dark ominous. We don't know what's going to happen here. Now the Lord is using this. The famine is over the whole land. So... Jacob and his family, they're running out of food as well, too. They find out there's food in Egypt. The only thing they need to do now is go to Egypt and get food. Now, we've got a couple points here we have to say. Jacob, Jacob for being the father of the 12 tribes, for being a man that God really used, Jacob really is an emotional wimp. I'm just going to throw that out there. Verse, look at all the things here It's going through Jacob's mindset. We have verse 4. Can't send Benjamin, the youngest, lest some calamity befall him. Jump ahead, if you will, to verse 36. Look at what happens as we get to the end of the chapter. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Verse 38. Jacob speaking again. But but he said, My son should not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity shall befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. And one more for fun, just jump ahead to chapter 43, verse 14. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. It basically means if I'm going to die of sadness, I'll die of sadness. Jacob really is this emotional guy. Now, you may stop and say, well, look at what he went through. He went through this tragic thing with Joseph 20 years ago, and I understand the tragedy of that. But what you're really seeing here with Jacob, there is no faith, no trust in the Lord in any way whatsoever. His mindset is the world is against him. Have you ever met somebody like that? I'm going to be honest with you, they're one of the most difficult people to talk to because they look at every single thing that happens to them as some way of God getting back to them or if I, have, if I wouldn't have bad luck, I'd have no luck at all type of thing. You just want to stop them and say, get over it. Because if you really are following the Lord... And you really have your focus on the Lord. You have to trust the promises of God. And we showed this slide a couple of weeks ago and I want to put it back up there real quick. Can you guys put the slide up one more time? These are the promises of God. We used this on a Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago, but just to remind us. For he himself said, "I will never leave you nor forsake you." Hebrews 13:5. "For I know the thoughts that I think toward you," says the Lord, "thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope." Jeremiah 29:11. And we know that all things, Romans 8:28. And we know that all things Work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You are good and do good. Psalm 119.68. You guys can leave that up there for a little bit. Looking at Jacob's mindset, he did not have that. Look at verse 36 one more time. You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. He thinks everything's against him. What is Romans 8.28? All things work together for good for you. If you know somebody like this and you have figured out how to get them off this pity party bandwagon, I would like to make an appointment with you and take notes. Because I don't know what to say. You try to tell them the goodness of God. You try to tell them these promises. You try to tell them that the Lord is good and does good. They have so convinced themselves that everything and everybody is out to get them, that nothing good ever happens to them. They're the only one that gets flat tires. They're the only one whose car breaks down. They're the only one who doesn't ever feel good. And they've just created this world of discouragement and negative, and you just want to stop and say, what God are you serving? Because the God that we serve, what did he tell us? In Romans 8, 37, you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And I see too many Christians walking around in this defeatist mentality like they're just never going to win. We're on the winning side. And we got to remember this. And I look at Jacob, and throughout these next couple chapters, every time Jacob comes on the scene, he's basically saying, it's the end, I'm just going to die, I'm so sad. Come on, Jacob. This is Jacob that wrestled with God. This is Jacob that's inherited the promises of the Lord. This is Jacob whose grandfather was Abraham. I mean, this is Jacob that had a front row seat to a lot of what God has done. But he has allowed tragedy in his life to destroy his faith. And Jacob needs to get his faith back and his mindset back on the Lord. And we say this all the time out here. Keep your eyes on the Savior and not on the situation. If your eyes are on the situation, you will be depressed and you will be discouraged. Because this is a depressing, discouraging world. But if you keep your eyes on the Savior, the Lord will get you through this. So just remember that as we go through that. Real quick, too, in verse 6, Joseph's governor, you see his brothers bowing down to him. Dream fulfilled. Remember that? A few chapters ago, everybody was mad at Joseph for saying these dreams of one day you're going to bow down to me. Guess what happened? Verse 6, dream fulfilled was fulfilled now we've got to ask ourselves this how would you respond at this point you were basically left for dead sold as a slave it's been 20 years now and your brothers show back up you're the second most powerful man in Egypt and we're going to go one step further Egypt was the world power at this time you're argumentably the second most powerful man in the world and your brothers show up their family is going to starve to death unless you give them food how would you respond to that We've talked before about these what we call revenge fantasies. They say this, I'm going to say this, and if they say this, I'm going to do that. And it just gets us going and it feels so good, doesn't it? I mean, it really does feel good. But you know what? There's this verse in the Bible that says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God has never called us to have a vengeful attitude or a revenge spirit. In fact, that verse is so powerful, God says it in Deuteronomy 32. He says it in Romans 12, and He also says it in Hebrews 10. You've heard me say before, if God says it once, it's it's important. If He decides to repeat Himself, you better be paying attention. If He decides to repeat a verse three times, you better have that puppy memorized, you know? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So that's Joseph's mindset. What's he going to do? Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Of course, they didn't recognize him. Joseph is probably dressed like the typical Egyptian. He probably had the shaved head. He did not have the full Jewish beard by any means. Um, This has been 20 years. They probably didn't recognize him. And why would they even think about it? So Joseph saw his brothers, verse 7, recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Now just make sure you know this. The reason he's speaking roughly to them, or some of your translations harshly, is he's trying to reveal their heart. This really what's going to go on here for chapter 42, chapter 43, 44, and even 45 is Joseph is going to put his brothers to these tests. And they're not tests to make them feel bad or tests to make them squirm, they're tests to say, Has my brother's hearts changed? So when he speaks roughly to them or harshly to them, this is not two decades of built up frustration. This is Joseph trying to get to the bottom of things. So he speaks roughly to them, then he said to them, "'Where did you come from?' And they said, "'From the land of Canaan, to buy food.'" So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Basically, you're pretending to be somebody else to come check us out, to see how we're doing. Verse 10. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's son. Verse 11. We are honest men. That phrase, honest men, is going to pop back up a couple more times. Keep that in the back of your mind. What did Joseph think? When they said, we are honest men. Your servants are not spies. He said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. Keep this all in the back of your mind. Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. Can you imagine what's going through Joseph's mind at this time? They're saying they're honest men. Have you ever had to deal with that before? Where you know someone's just flat out lying to you and they say they're honest? Oh, it's a, it's a struggle. My, uh, We've shared this before at home. We like to joke and tease a lot and we like to say ridiculous things. It's just like what we do. But we have this little phrase that we say, if, if we say, I promise, that means there's no joking in any way whatsoever. That's one of the rules of the Urban House. You can't be joking or teasing if you say, I promise. So if somebody says, I promise, it's like, okay, all joking aside, I'm just being honest here. Except, Layden, our fourthborn, has realized if you say, I promise, that's a powerful word. So, what happens now is he just says, I promise all the time. You know, the brother will come in in tears, blood coming down off his face, and he says, Layden hit me. Layden, did you hit him? No, I promise you I didn't. We say, okay, Layden, we got to talk about this. Let's go to the bedroom. You don't want to go to my bedroom. That's not good. If I ever say, go sit on my bed, you're in trouble. Layden, go sit on my bed. So, if you come over to my house and I say, go sit on my bed, just leave, okay? So, Layden, go sit on my bed. Laden sits on my bed. Laden, did you hit him? No, I promise. I didn't. Laden, the evidence is against you. You know, your th- fist print is on his face, you know, We could we could go through the DNA test. you hit him, okay?'re you're, you're guilty. So we have to discipline you. And then it's, why would you discipline me? I promise you, I didn't. See, and what happens here is you see these guys saying, we are honest men. I mean, didn't Joseph at that time just want to basically say, got to be kidding me. Honest men? And one brother is no more? What do you mean one brother is no more? So Joseph is trying to get to the bottom of this. He's trying to test them. See, look, verse 15, in this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison and your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days, and Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, see there's that phrase again, if you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. He basically says, I want to see your youngest brother. I want to see Benjamin. Now, why did he do that? Why did he want to see Benjamin? You know, they said they're honest men. Good old King James is out there. It says you are true men. So he knows that there's Benjamin. This is my personal opinion, take it or leave it. Joseph at the time was dad's favorite. And the brothers despised him, hated him for being dad's favorite. Well, we know from staying out the Bible that Benjamin had become Jacob's favorite. This was the youngest son. This was the son of his favorite wife. She died in childbirth. Benjamin held a very special place in his brother's hearts. Now, what's going to happen, excuse me, in his father's heart? What's going to happen here in a little bit? I'm going to get ahead of myself and I'm going to give away the ending. He's going to get Benjamin there. And basically, he's going to accuse Benjamin of a crime. And he's going to stop and say, are my brothers willing to put their lives on the line now to save Benjamin's life? And if they're willing to put their lives on the line to save Benjamin's life, that shows me their hearts have changed. If they're not willing to save Benjamin's life, and they basically say, fine, take Benjamin, we never liked him anyway, Joseph says, I know their hearts hasn't changed. So these next few chapters are really a test. And that's exactly what he says he's going to do to them. Verse 16, I'm going to test you. And I don't think they really realize what the test was. But Joseph is saying, I need to know if your heart has changed, and the only way I can know if your heart is changed is, are you guys willing to let go of your cold and callousness you had towards me and do something to save your brother rather than save yourselves? I mean, think about what the Bible says. Greater love has this than no man that would be willing to lay down his life for another. That's the most loving thing you can do. And Joseph says, I'm going to test you guys to see if this is true. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Anybody have any quick questions, comments here? Ryan. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point, and I don't have a map to put up here, but just mentally in my mind I'm looking at this map, and it's probably in the back of your Bibles. It was quite a little trek, obviously, to go from Canaan to Egypt. So this is not like, hey, leave a brother here, we'll be back tomorrow. We're talking months and months and months that this process is going to be going on. To answer your first question about why did they say this, well, if you jump ahead, Jacob basically says the same thing to him. Jacob basically says, why did you say that you are 12 brothers? Why did you do this? And they basically said... He was asking, and how would we have thought that that he would have said something? You know, this is what they said. Jump ahead to verse 32. We said to him, we are 12 brothers, sons of one father, one is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, verse 33, said to us, by this I will know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. That's what we kind of talked about. So Jacob there in a little bit basically says, why do you do this? And this is what he says in verse chapter 43. Jacob says... Why would you guys tell him you had 12? And then the brother's response is, how were we supposed to know that he was going to use that information against us? So to answer your question, why did they say it? I don't know exactly why they said it, but Jacob asked them the same thing. Why did you guys do this? You should have just said you were 11. I think if they said that way, it just had 11 brothers, Joseph probably would have flown off the handle at that moment there. So, But Jacob was asking the same question as well. Why in the world could you have done it? It's actually in verse 7 of chapter 43. The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would have said, bring your brother down? So they were wondering the same thing. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? All right, so what's going to happen here? Let's pick it up again in verse uh, 21. So they know what's going on. They see that they're in trouble, verse 21. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter, and he turned away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Now, we mentioned this a few weeks ago when we talked about Joseph being sold as a slave, that even though these brothers acted like it didn't bother them, if you remember correctly, as they sold him as a slave, they were actually eating a meal. And they basically were having a little party. We're getting rid of Joseph. What we see here now, verse 21, they saw the anguish of his soul, they pleaded with us, and they realized we are guilty. We are wrong. Here's the thing, and here's a really simple point. You will never be able to get away from conviction and guilt. You never will. If you do something you shouldn't do, that is going to eat at you. Because that's one of the Holy Spirit's jobs. One of the Holy Spirit's jobs is to convict you of sin. This is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it shows how much God loves us that He wants to have a relationship with us, so therefore the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and anytime I do something wrong, there's this little nagging pit in my stomach that says, James, no, you got to get this right. It's a blessing, but it's also a curse, because if you ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it makes your life miserable. Miserable. These guys have held on to this guilt and shame for 20 years. 20 years. Did you ever have anything you did You knew you shouldn't have done, but you got away with it. And no one would ever know, but it still just deeds at you. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There is a conviction of the Holy Spirit that gets the best of you. When I was preparing for this message, I never knew this existed, but this actually exists. There's something called a governmental conscience fund. Have you ever heard about this? This is fascinating that as an American citizen, if you did something you shouldn't have, maybe you didn't pay all your taxes, maybe you did something wrong, that you are allowed to send money to this governmental conscience fund to clear your conscience. And basically, it's it's out there. Go check it out. So maybe there was one time where you were working at a governmental agency and you took something you should have, you took some extra pens and you're convicted by it. Send them two bucks. That's what happens. It's a fascinating thing. I encourage you to go read the articles. It's not really spiritual, but it's fascinating. The point is, people feel convicted. They feel guilty about things. These brothers are a mess because they're convicted over what's going on. The only way to get this made right is through what? The whole process of forgiveness and repentance and restoration. How many times in life do we try to make ourselves feel better by doing things? Maybe we try to do extra good stuff. We try to do some penance. I did bad, so I'll do good to make up for it. You know what? That doesn't work. We still carry that conviction, guilt, and shame. Or we try to turn to other things to mask it. You know what I mean, the people, the drugs, the alcohol, the relationships, whatever. No, it comes through Christ and through Christ alone. That's the only place it comes. We have to know the difference, though, between this conviction, guilt, shame, all this stuff. Can you go with me to Romans 8.1 real quick? A lot of you know where I'm going with this. But it's important for us as Christians to understand this. Romans 8.1. So often people call me and they want to talk and they show up in my office and they're just full of this guilt, conviction, shame. They should have been a better spouse. They should have been a better parent. They should have been a better person. And they don't know what to do. Hit your knees, accept Jesus, and ask for forgiveness. That's what you do. Problem is that doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound... It should be tougher than that, right? No, it's actually that easy. If you remember correctly, here actually we'll jump back a little bit in Romans chapter seven, verses thirteen through twenty-five. Paul has this great message where he basically says, "I'm just a sinner. I'm just a sinner." And he sums it up by this, verse twenty-four: "O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death?" Basically, Paul says, "I'm just a wretched, awful sinner." Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Paul basically says the only way I'm not going to be a wretched man is through Jesus Christ our Lord. But you know what the problem is? You get saved, and these thoughts are still there. That you should have done this different. You should have done this better. Well, look at verse 1 of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, when you are a new creation in Christ, He wants to take away the guilt, the shame, the conviction. There's no condemnation anyway whatsoever. That's the only way you're going to get rid of it is through Christ. Note that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like these verses we have up here, especially Romans eight twenty-eight, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. If I'm dealing with a non-believer and they're wondering why their world is falling apart, I can't give them Romans 8.28. I can't. If you're not in God, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, there is no promise that everything that happens in your life is good. And one of the worst pieces of advice you can give to an unsafe person is, oh, don't worry, I know God will use this for good. No, He won't. You're not walking in the will of the Lord. If you're not walking in the will of the Lord, if you're not a child of God, He's not going to use everything that happens in your life for good. He's not. He's not. That's not a problem. But as a believer, I know that he will. So if somebody comes to me that's not saved, I can't get that guilt shame off of them. I can't. Verse 1, they have to know Jesus. Romans 8. And if they know Jesus, now there's no condemnation. In this world we live in, we try to give people peace of mind without Christ. It doesn't work. You can't give somebody peace of mind, peace in life without Jesus Christ. It will not work. What we need to do is keep pointing them back to Christ because as you point them back to Christ He's the one that says now I have a plan for your life now I will take away the guilt the shame, the condemnation that's the only thing that can do it. How many times have we said to people oh don't feel bad no, maybe you should feel bad until you know Christ that is an unconfessed sin that needs to be dealt with. These brothers if you go back and look at verses 21 and 22 they felt awful and Joseph weeping over them He feels bad that they feel bad. Is that not a picture of Jesus? A couple days before Christ dies on the cross, what does the Bible say in the book of Luke? Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because he cares so much about them. So these guys have this conviction, this guilt that needs to be taken care of, and right now it still hasn't been taken care of. So now they head back home. Verse 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them. Their hearts sank, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Now, I don't know about you guys. If I went out and bought a car, say I bought a car for $10,000, and I got back home and I saw that the dealership gave me my money back, I would not say, what is this that God has done to us? I would have said, amen, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) It all depends on your perspective. Like If you did something wrong this last weekend, and I came up to you and said, hey, how was your weekend? Automatic guilt, shame. Well, what do you mean, how was my weekend? What do you mean by that? I remember one time, years and years ago, poor Dawn and I had kids. We were in Walmart. And we were in Walmart, and for some reason, we were not seeing eye-to-eye on something in Walmart. I don't even remember what it was. And So we were having this little discussion in the middle of Walmart. And I remember a couple of days later, someone from church came up to me and said, hey, I saw you in Walmart. I'm like, what did you see? You know? <laughs> I, was, I, was, I felt guilty. What, what did you see? You know, if someone comes up to me today and says, hey, I saw what you did today. Okay, I didn't do anything bad today. I think I'm clear. Now, if they came up to me and said, I don't know, just randomly, I saw what you did last Tuesday, I'd be like, well, what do you mean? You know, it's that guilt. It's that shame. These guys know they're not right with the Lord. They know they're not right in this situation. So their money's restored. And what are they doing in verse 28? Blaming God. What is this that God has done to us? Have you not ever seen somebody blame God? It's always God's fault. I don't know why he's doing it. It goes back to this Jacob thing. This discouraged and this depressed thing that God's out to get me and oh, here we go again. God's going to do this. Why do we even pray? It doesn't do any good. It doesn't make any changes. No. Go back to our verses. The Lord is good and does good. Something happens in your life that's still difficult doesn't mean God is trying to hurt you. There may be a bigger picture that we don't see. These guys got their money back, and they're completely freaking out about this. Verse 29, Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told them all that happened to them, saying, This man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. I think they're still trying to convince themselves. We're honest men. Verse 32, We are twelve brothers, sons of her father. One is no more, and the youngest is with her father, the day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the family of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, that you are, here's our word again, honest men or true men. I will grant you your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks, they surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were, look at that word, afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they're walking in conviction and guilt and shame. They're not walking in the will of God. They have unconfessed sin, so therefore things are afraid. They're walking in fear. When you're where you're supposed to be spiritually, you're not walking in fear. You're not, you would see these things as, oh, wow, look what the Lord did. Verse 36, And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. See, he already gave up on Simeon. Simeon's the one that stayed. And he want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. See, look at this. This is a man that does not have his eyes on the Lord. This is a man that has his eyes on the situations. God's against me. You're against me. Everybody's against me. You're sending me to the grave. Come on, this is just emotional junk that he's talking. This is not a person who's saying, Lord, my life is in your hands and I trust you. Verse 37, then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Can you imagine being one of his two sons listening to that? Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity shall befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring my hair, gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I mean, he, he just you're going to kill me guys, you're just going to kill me. Well, that sets us up for next week because we know what happens. The famine continues. It goes on for seven years, the Bible tells us. They eventually have to go back. Now, if you were Simeon, wouldn't you wonder what took so long? I mean, poor Simeon. I mean, didn't didn't you think Simeon was under this understanding, hey, just, I'll, I'll stay, go, get Benjamin, come back, we'll get this sorted out. I don't know how long it took, but poor Simeon. But this is what we need to realize. When we look here in Genesis 42... What we see are men that are carrying burdens of 20 years of guilt and shame and conviction. And so since they're carrying these guilt and shame of conviction, every blessing now looks like a curse. They walk in the fear of the Lord instead of the blessing of the Lord. They walk in this guilt and shame and condemnation because they haven't had their lives been made right with the Lord. We can relate to that. Joseph is a picture of Jesus that wants to make it right. He wants to forgive them and that's what's going to happen here in a little bit. But he's testing them at this time to say, are your hearts changed? Because here's the catch. Let's bring this around full circle now, spiritually speaking. You can't have peace unless your heart has been changed in Jesus Christ. You can't. If you try to find peace in this world apart from a relationship with Christ, it will be futile. It completely will. And Joseph is that picture of Jesus that wants to bring peace, take care of the guilt and shame, and make it right. And that's what these brothers need. Once again, we have a few chapters until that happens, but Joseph is testing them to say, have you changed? Because if you've changed, we can have peace. We can make this right. And I tell you here tonight, I tell you, if you came in here tonight and you're carrying guilt or shame or conviction, the best thing you can do is take it to Jesus Christ and tell Him you're sorry. I mean, isn't that just the most straightforward thing we can do is just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I know I'm a sinner. That's what the Lord wants to do. Let's finish this up real quick. Can you go with me to um, Psalm 139? Psalm 139. I tell you, if you're somebody who has walked in that guilt and shame and and you still feel that condemnation, even though you know you've given it to the Lord and you're still carrying that, I encourage you tonight for devotions. Read Psalm 51. Psalm 51. It's the psalm that David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he confessed his sin. It's a really great psalm to say, Lord, I give you this sin. I no longer want to carry it. I want to be free. But Psalm 139, just two quick verses at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Just a great prayer to pray every now and then. Lord, search my heart. Is there something in my life that I have allowed to come in that's causing damage? a relationship with my spouse, a relationship with my kids, things that I'm allowing in my closet that I shouldn't allow in there, thoughts, I don't know, whatever it is, Lord, search me. I want this to be taken care of, Lord. And then you can walk in the peace of the Lord when you truly give it over to Him in all ways and all things. Anybody have any final questions, comments here? Ryan. Uh, I just think it's interesting uh, verse 23 is supposed to an interpreter because we all know that so perfect English yeah. then yeah. secondly... Yeah. Well, you know, and that's a good point, is how long did it take him to learn Egyptian? Well, I would say he probably was a pretty smart guy, obviously. The Lord had blessed him. And if you're thrown into a foreign culture where no one else is speaking Hebrew, you're probably forced to learn it pretty quick. But I think Joseph is one of those guys, reminds me a lot of Daniel, put in a difficult situation. He rose to the occasion rather than deflated because of his faith in the Lord there. Anybody else have anything that would say for a close-up? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us just to truly walk in you. And I just think of that passage of creating us a clean heart. If there's something in here that we're still carrying this guilt and shame of, in the name of Jesus, we come to you at the heart of confession. And we come to you and say, Lord, bring peace into our lives as we confess to you our sins and our faults. Lord, help us to be like Joseph, to not harbor anger, frustration, or revenge against somebody, but to truly forgive in all ways and all things. Lord, help us not to be like Jacob. To so walk in this emotion of everything is against us. But Lord, you're for us. You're for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors in Christ, no matter what we're facing. We lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.